0: Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an I will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything.
1: Episode 25. I didn't see this one coming. If you are tuning in for the first time or binging episodes, Or if you are part of our Blink of an Eye Weekly listening family, we are learning together about the traumas in our own life, the experience of trauma, and we are waking up to the potential for trauma healing in our lives. So settle in. You already know from the last episode how day five ended. It was sobering. And I was scared and I was confused. And you might recall, I was also wondering as I wrote my daily family update, but I thought the better of it, of sharing what was weighing heavily on my heart. Yes, Archer's future, of course. But what was also making it almost hard for me to breathe was what was happening to Billy and me. Marriages during times of great trauma might not be discussed very often. Were we unraveling? This might be a raw episode for many to hear. I don't know. But I know it might be, especially if you have suffered a divorce related to family tragedy. But for me, and I hope for many of you, a little distance that the grace of time affords, five plus years later for me, really does help to look back to see how these things unfolded and happened as part of the path of integration and to living wholly again. Yes, family trauma is hard on a marriage even a solid marriage. Oh, I think I've told you also, but if I have not, I located, actually, Billy located for me all these years later, an absolute treasure chest to me. Thousands of pages of original text messages from 2015. They have been incredibly healing and helpful for me to look back and reconstruct this story as it really was. I've relied on them tremendously. And I have found that it is worth it to do a look back and to look back to fill in some pieces and to see with fresh eyes what didn't make sense before so that I can now make sense of it today. And so we can continue to move forward and live wholly again. Oh, I should probably also tell you, I had very little awareness of the deep impact that the trauma itself was having on me. The experience of trauma is like that. You know something is happening and your life just turned upside down but you don't know you are in trauma when you are in trauma. In time, if you are lucky and blessed though, you wake up in the moment while the trauma experience is unfolding or later, slowly, incrementally, not all at once but with little epiphanies along the way that help you integrate your trauma experience and make sense of it so you can live holy again. (laughs) Isn't that what we all hope for? Okay, settle in now, here we go. August 9th, day five, it was Sunday. Life can change in the blink of an eye. There isn't much time in an intensive care unit for thinking through complicated things. There were so many comings and goings and different parts to attend to decision-making in this upside-down world that I really didn't even realize was upside-down yet, really. I thought Billy and I were doing okay, although I really didn't know how he was actually doing. Isn't that crazy? You live with someone for more than 30 years, share a bed together, create babies together, make a life together, and then overnight, you don't know how they are. How is that possible to live with someone and not really know how they are? Every time Billy and I talked, I could tell he was getting more and more overwhelmed. We both were, I guess. There was something about day five, moving into the fifth night, felt like things were moving into the long term, I guess like we were not going to be released from this intensive care unit for a while. I guess that was part of it. It was beginning to feel heavy. There was a whole new group of people and families in the family waiting room. We were still there. It was intense each day. So different. Sometime early that morning, or during the night, Archer had spiked a fever. When I arrived back at the hospital, everything was different with the staff. A certain, mm, brusqueness had entered the air. They were tense, it was not good. The body can ward off only so much, you know? I told myself over and over, A fever means his body is still working because that's what fevers do. They fight off what is damaging to the body. A fever means his body is still working, right? It was self-talk to the max to calm my nerves. When Billy had told me, he was so clipped. Archer has a fever, he said. And that was all he said. We were passing like ships in the night, taking our shifts and managing as best we could. I didn't know how Billy felt or what he was thinking. I remember being bothered that I really didn't know how Billy was. As part of the look back, I can tell you now that I didn't have time with him. I didn't have Time to notice him. Do you know what I mean? We notice people in our lives, don't we? How they sit, how they enter and exit a room, how they carry themselves upright or slumped, how they walk sure or aimless, how clear they look, their eyes, their skin, their hands or how foggy their brows, their shuffle, how relaxed or how unsure they are. Even without their speaking or uttering a sound, there is so much to notice about someone. I didn't have my someone to notice in many days. Not too many hours had passed from the time I had arrived back in the trauma intensive care unit from Cape May. But already things were happening. A nurse came in to assess Archer. I know now that these assessments were incredibly significant, but I didn't know then just how much. And no one explained. The tech himself didn't explain he was basically assessing for what would become Archer's diagnosis of what level of quadriplegia he had and whether he was what was called a quadriplegic incomplete or a quadriplegic complete. You hope and pray you don't have a quadriplegia diagnosis. You beg you do not have a quadriplegic complete assessment. But no one told us any of this. The young tech just said he needed to do an assessment and asked me to leave. I didn't like that. I was thrown off and asked, why? To which he responded, to do an assessment. I came back with, but why are you asking me to leave? I am Archer's mother. He said he preferred to do the assessments without anyone in the room. Another nurse came in, and he also asked her to leave too. I just didn't like it. So I asked if I could record him, and I left my phone on audio while I stepped out in the hall to see if I could find a doctor to explain to me about Archer's lungs and how long we would be there. Here are some excerpts of that audio from 2015 of over 20 minutes of assessment time that the nurse had with Archer, most of which had long periods of only the hospital machine beeping sounds.
2: Go through like a full assessment with him. You have any pain? Very good. Can you seek your tongue out? All right. Let me see you. Show your shoulders up. All right. Can you lift your arms up off the back? Can you just sweep both my hands as hard as you can? Take a look at the deep pain. I'm going to take a listen to your lungs and your heart. You want me touching you now? Do i go a little bit lower than the other side. You want me touching you? You feel this? I oh, no. Okay, I'm just going through an assessment. So, can I, I sit down? Uh, actually, yeah, I'm going to just have to step out for a few minutes, okay? And as soon as I'm done, I'll come back with you guys. Actually, we going to get your temperature. Okay, right under the tongue. I'm going to check your OG tube, see how your tube gauge is going. bump you up a little bit. Archer. Sure. Do you need anything right now? Want anything? Okay. I'm gonna get your friends and family after yeah, bring them go back in. How's Alright. All right. How's Archer doing? He's doing Okay. What were you assessing? Uh
3: Good. Tell me what you assessed and what you found as well. No
2: change from what I got from the for it, no. Just around the nipple line for the same it's got sensation. Okay. Did you, you uh, assess him for sensation in his feet? Yes. And? Because he recorded yesterday, he could feel his feet. Huh? Mm. I was squeezing his toes. And I got no reaction. He were- will. Okay. Yeah, will. Cool. Same okay. thing about phones? No.
1: I share this with you to give you a sense. Of the tediousness of our days in that ICU, the lack of real dialogue, the look back feeling of incredulity that I have telling you how much I did not know and did not know to ask, and of the power of a request by a medical staff person to do an assessment without anyone else in the room. And then to get information assessing that was not shared. I don't intend for this to be any condemnation at all of medical staff. I am merely saying that I am an intelligent woman and was having a great deal of difficulty getting good digestible information. And had we had that information it could have helped us all a lot along the way with what we knew and what we could then focus on needing. I'm also not implying that anything was afoot or out of place. But I think a better practice for any type of body assessment on any human being is to educate what the assessor is going to do and is looking for ahead of time and to have had a nurse or other witness in the room and to, at the very least, have given me some respect for why I would want to stay. There was nothing hostile or impolite. In fact, it was very polite. But a lack of polite was not at the heart of what I was bothered by. I do think I was bothered by something more basic. The lack of good manners. At the foundation of all good manners is the desire to set someone at ease. It's why we open up the door to help someone else. And it's why we don't insist if they don't want it. He could have set me at ease by allowing my presence and by giving us some information. As best I could tell after I decided to come in anyway, is that either Archer's brain could detect a sensation sent through the spinal cord from his body, or it couldn't. But no one explained that to me then. No one explained that to me for weeks. And I would hope medical staff would know that a mother's instincts, at least mine to this day, are to always be in the room when one of my children is with a medical staff person being physically examined. I would like to see hospital policies that support what are good instincts in families and not subjugate them or dismiss them. It's amazing to me to this day how much we trust professionals. And we should, by and large, as that is what a cohesive society is built around. But mothers are experts too. And allowing a medical expert access to our bodies, I think, is always something to be cautious about. If they are truly expert, they would understand this and want another set of eyes and want to do all they could to assure confidence and trust. It would be good to have someone caring in the room. And not necessarily a second pair of eyes on the person or the person's body, but a presence in the room, in the role of witness. I'd be curious about your thoughts on that. I couldn't quite put my finger on it then, what exactly it was I was unsettled about. Other than that, I was Archer's mother and was being asked to leave. But I think now it was that Archer also had no way, none, to defend himself if there was any kind of unwanted touching. That was on my mind. I had been on an honor council for college and law school students, essentially sitting in hearings about things kids did to get in trouble that range from the stupid knucklehead kind of thing young people can do with alcohol to the thoughtless, reckless disregard for the well-being of another student. Those years shaped me into a discernment, not to be too harsh on what is unknowing and stupid, while on the other hand, to wonder what is the right response to someone who has assaulted or raped a co-ed who has passed out drunk. And these cases haunted me, as I remember thinking how absolutely wrong and sickening it was for anyone to do something that heinous to anyone else. Rape is a crime of an abuse of power. And I was still haunted by the complete inability of the victims to defend themselves, probably because it had almost happened to me too in college. So that assessment nurse for Archer Assessing him and asking us all to leave when Archer wouldn't be able to call out or move or run or do anything to defend himself really had me going, even though what was happening in Archer's room had absolutely nothing to do with my memory of what happened to those various college co-eds when I sat on the honor council or what almost happened to me, nothing. And yet it did. It's funny, isn't it? How things that have really jarred you in the past can stick with you, haunt you. Even when they didn't involve you directly, but you're shocked by them and then later you can get triggered in a hair-split kind of way over something that is not at all related. Yet it is. I've learned now that that is part of trauma too. I actually was very interested when my children were young and it's why I didn't want TV in our house when the kids were young and why I never condoned horror movies they can traumatize the brain, create terrorizing memories that show up in nightmares, and kids who can't self-soothe. I was going to do my best to protect my kids when they were little. I read up on it a lot when the children were young. But you know, that day, the fifth day in Atlantic care as I walked down the trauma unit corridor looking for a pulmonologist, I could not have told you then where my edginess really stemmed from. All I could tell you is that I was just sort of bothered and I was distracted and I was sort of edgy. Yeah, edgy. I thought I was just P.O.ed because I had been asked to leave when I was Archer's mom. But it was actually something deeper, something older, something more disturbing than that. But I could not have told you that then. That's why lookbacks years later can be so helpful for healing. I found a pulmonologist who was very knowledgeable and even seemed to know about Archer, even though he was not one of Archer's doctors. I've already told you some of what he shared about the lungs, but I also learned about pneumothorax, that it comes from trauma to the chest and usually involves only one lung. He told me that when a chest tube is inserted between the ribs to drain air, it is there very temporarily. And I said, <laughs> we were on day three with three tubes. And he nodded and said, yes, very severe cases can be several days. He was very serious, a bit stern even. I asked him about lung drainage, and he told me about what to expect if things were progressing I didn't know how much Archer had drained off in the night. I then asked, how does fever impact this? He dropped his head. He then lifted it and looked right at me and told me, he is being monitored very closely. I watched him very closely as we stood in the hallway as he looked at me and I looked at him. He then turned to leave and then a most amazing thing happened. He looked back at me, turned around and stepped towards me. His eyes were so dark and kind He said very quietly, your son is a very severe case. You are lucky he is alive now. (sighs) That was so profound to me. No one had told us that. I felt my eyes beginning to sting again. And I mumbled to him, we thank God. And he held his gaze with me and said, yes, we thank God. I was sort of surprised
4: as I didn't think I had any tears left after my drives back and forth to the hospital in Cape May. I honestly didn't think I would ever cry again. But I was really surprised at how he joined me. And he was so loving. He was. I was so grateful. I think he was, too. I can't imagine what it is like for these staff. I do think he was grateful, too. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving us Archer's life. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. As I walked down the hall and back to Archer's room, my mind was wandering back to earlier this morning. I wondered about God and what God had in mind for Archer when I saw Billy coming down the hall. He had been gone for hours.
1: He approached and it felt very heavy. All of a sudden, Billy seemed agitated. I asked him about Archer's stats from the night to compare to what the doctor had just told me to look for and to tell him what the doctor had just said. I said genuinely, I'd looked in the notebooks, but didn't see what you had written, but I think I had just poked the sleeping bear. Somehow he felt attacked or accused. I'm not sure. He was angry. I was taken aback. I told him, it's okay. It's okay. I'll ask the nurses and Archer's doctor when he comes around. And Billy growled. They're not around. Yes, they are, I said. And he said, it's Sunday. I knew Billy was distressed. Archer had taken a step back in his progress. Billy's distress made me distressed. I tried to breathe. He was really bothered. And I said, I just talked to someone who wasn't Archer's doctor, but who was helpful, Billy. They are around. He snapped at me again why did he think there wouldn't be any doctors here on Sunday? I then had a flash. Oh, yes, he has been in an ICU twice. Once when his dad, at 81 years of age, was admitted, and after a lot of grueling back and forth over months, he died. And another time, when he himself had a pancreatic attack. It was a number of years ago. I was overseas traveling for work and he, well, he was on morphine, but he felt that the staff had put him in a dehydration prison and he got up and walked out. I remember flying home as fast as I could and racing to see him in the hospital when I got a call on my cell phone from Billy himself, telling me he was on his way home and would meet me there. I'm sure that gave the staff a heart attack. But okay, I guess he might know a thing or two about ICUs on Sunday. What I knew is that both his experiences were not good at all. In fact, they were horrific for him, both very upsetting and emotionally painful. I had that realization then as I stood in the hallway at the Atlantic Care with Billy. But I didn't have the awareness that I do today to put it all together now. That Billy's big reaction to being in the ICU hospital generally was almost like reenacting the prior really bad negative experiences he had had in ICUs that he never got over. It makes sense. So that's what I've learned. That's what trauma does to us. It causes overwhelm and If we have old traumas, the new trauma triggers all the old trauma alarm bells that it's not safe. This can happen to any of us, no matter how smart or strong or capable. And the reenactment is the brain sending messages to the body that it's happening all over again. And the body thinks it really is. It's helpful to know this to explain seemingly erratic behavior unrelated or out of proportion to what is actually being presented. But what really helps to know now is that for different reasons and to varying degrees, many things happening in the ICU were setting off old, unresolved traumas for both of us. I wonder how much medical staff knows this, and how much viewing, observing patients traumas set medical staff off from their own as well. We are all very interrelated. Maybe you can think of a time in your life when you or your spouse or partner acted in a way that you can now explain was related to old wounds, old unresolved trauma. It doesn't make the trauma experience go away to know this, but it sure can ease the experience because of the new understanding. And that understanding can open the door to compassion for yourself and for others. We sure could use more of that because I think trauma can happen to any of us when we have a really bad experience in life that causes us to feel very unsafe or unloved to the degree that We carry it with us and act out years later, thinking it's the same experience again. Or we might not think it's the same experience again, but our bodies are responding as if it is. Like being criticized might mean being abandoned. And there's a big reactivity to that or expressing a difference of opinion might lead to being ostracized from your group. And there might be a big reactivity to that. Oh, there are many things we can explore about trauma. You know what I mean? But back then, as Billy and I stood in the hallway in an argument about whether or not I could find a doctor for Archer on a Sunday, I just thought Billy was sleep deprived. As he began to walk away, I thought, why would a Sunday be any different in an ICU? Patients' care needs do not change. Well, I guess everyone needs a life and days off, but that is not where Billy was coming from. I said to Billy, as a pure problem-solving question, well, I wonder whom we could call to talk with about Archer's drainage. And Billy yelled, no one, don't you get it? Oh, I didn't get it, but I did. I knew I had crossed some sort of imaginary boundary that was not articulated And I'm not sure Billy even knew it existed. I now know that is what trauma does. But at the time, all I knew to say was, okay, okay, I'm sorry. He really was not himself. I watched him walk down the hall with a heavy charge forward walk, like he was going to clobber someone. I knew he never would, but I could tell he was about to combust. I had hoped he'd go back to Cape May and get some sleep. I sat down in the chair beside Archer and began to check his tubes and see how much was draining from his lungs. It was still a very slow one drip every few minutes kind of thing. I knew his body was working hard. I just knew it. I said a prayer that he would remain strong and ask God, please, Lord, help his body to do what it was intended to do. Breathe. Please, Lord, we need him off these machines. That was just it. We did. We all needed Archer's body to do its work. We can do it, Arch. Come on, darling, I thought to myself as I watched him sleeping. We can do it. God is going to help us. I sat wondering about a few other things. How was Archer's chest traumatized? With no one witnessing the dive, how did it happen that he had trauma to his chest? I didn't understand that. I couldn't get it out of my mind. And I also could not get out of my mind what James Schmucker had told me yesterday as we were outside of Archer's hospital room when James was telling me what he remembered about the accident,
3: and we hung out for a couple minutes, and then he wanted to go in, so I went in with him, and I put on my um, flippers, and I think he just kind of went in, and I dove in, and I think I triple waved, and then I started uh, swam back out, and then I didn't really see what like what had happened. I just saw him face down, kind of. I did not know if he um, either took a wave in and hit his head or died over a wave. So then I saw him like laying there, and I looked up at Davis, and like Davis like looked at me like, "What's going on?" And we like both kind of like saw him at, like at the same time. So I swam over to him and like flipped him over, and he was kind. Of, he was he was kind of like out at the time. Like, I don't think he was conscious, and like. I just, I rolled him over, and I just grabbed him, and I started, like, swimming him in. And then, like, as I was swimming him in, he kind of, like, came, came to it and said that he couldn't he couldn't feel anything. He said he thought he was paralyzed. So I got him, I got him into the shore, and I dragged him up a little bit out of the break uh, sand. And he said he had to get the water out of his chest,
2: He said he had to get
1: the water out of his chest. He said he had to get the water out of his chest. Archer said he dove and hit a sandbar with his head. I wondered, could water cause trauma to the chest? What? caused trauma to Archer's chest. I watched Archer and these heavy breathing machines. I also thought more about Billy. When he and I were standing in the hallway before he left the ICU to drive back to Cape May. I had also said trying to soothe him and also something I thought would be good for us. Let's both try to be here at the hospital together. But he didn't want to do that, citing the impracticality of it with the two-person rule, which he hated. I had again implored him. Come on, honey, we could at least talk in the family waiting room. But he again rebuffed any overture, that who would be there for Archer? And then he growled. There are too many people in and out of there. I thought he was referring to the lack of privacy. Frankly, for me, I was waving goodbye to privacy and was just yearning to have some time together to talk. I didn't care who was around. But I had this moment of awareness as he was so resistant to anything and everything, even something very simple. He was hyperactivated about just about anything. He was not concerned about privacy, or maybe he was, I don't know, but his issue I think was more basic than that. There were just too many moving pieces there really were. He and I had been texting all morning back and forth the issues we needed to decide. And our list was growing long. And it included big things like sell the house, sell the business, move. Oh, and this new situation had him agitated, too, I know. Physically agitated. Agitated. It was a kind of unsettled feeling I'd seen him have before when things were not in order or even if one of his favorite sports teams was losing because they they were not in order, you know, on the field, not playing well. I get that. But this time it had a quality of not being over in an hour or two. I took in a deep breath for me. When things are not in order or as they should be or as I want them to be, I can feel a little hoppy too. But for me, it's more emotional. And at times, I can feel a little panicky. I was not feeling that exactly. But I was feeling Billy. It was affecting me a lot. I'd say it was a somatic experience, more obviously physical for him. I imagined he felt off kilter, out of whack, out of control, straight jacketed. Oh, he hated a situation where he felt straight jacketed or steamrollered. Oh, he did. But I wasn't. 100% sure. And that might not have been all of it. He'd have to tell you himself. But I think it was pretty close. You might resonate with that too. I didn't know then what I know now, which is that when he had such a large reaction, it was related to some prior negative experience he had had. And probably, potentially at least, even way before the two bad ICU experiences, way back, like when he was a kid or even a baby, where he felt steamrollered and straightjacketed. But there I was. I did have a glimmer. But... It was more like this. I stood there in the hallway and some things were falling into place to understand how Billy might feel. He had told me at various times in the last 24 hours that he didn't like the number of rotating staff. He didn't like the visitors in and out. He wanted me at the hospital, but he didn't like my not being home to manage the people and to manage the things being dropped off. He didn't know why Archer's friends had to come didn't even like the number of people at home and then not at home. He wanted our big kids there, but he didn't want Paula to miss work, but he wanted to know where she was. People were telling him what to do. He didn't like that. And he also didn't know what to do, which he also didn't like. It was just too much discombobulation. He was an unhappy camper. I got it. But I also knew that was not the complete picture. I mean, it was, but I mean, it wasn't. It was just the fallout of the overwhelm. I tried to tell him that because at least I knew back then from being a transformative mediation trainer that it was just overwhelm, honey. But when I did, He just growled louder. I knew it was best to just let him be. He was already escaping halfway down the hallway anyway. I was so focused on Billy. I completely forgot to check in with me. As he walked away, I realized... shook up I was. I was a hot mess too. I was almost relieved that he had left. I felt bad for him. I was also like good riddance. And I also was mad that he couldn't see what all had to be juggled in this hospital. And I just wanted someone to hold me. I wanted a partner. And my partner was far away in every way. How
4: long, Lord, will this last? You know how in every marriage
1: there are roles? (laughs) Of course you do. Some you naturally fall into, some are assigned, and some you are forced to take on. Well, I had fallen into the role of the gatekeeper in our lives, and it seemed to be a role the family relied upon, and I did easily. But in that role, Billy had assigned to me another role of bad cop, and it's true. The two roles often go hand in hand. Maybe they do in your life too. And there seems to always be a heavy in just about every parenting partnership.
4: Do I not have that right? Yeah,
1: a heavy. One of the parents has got to be the one who holds down the rules and the discipline. I get that. Well, that was me. And I also got this, for Billy, I was not there to help sort it out, where he was, or at the very least to play Girl Scout mom or the traffic cop, two other roles I naturally assumed in our household and I enjoyed. But I wasn't sure how to be a gatekeeper in this ICU because I wasn't sure yet who were the really needed people for Archer and who were the good guys and gals. It was all so new to me, but I got it. And I knew Billy, I knew that he knew Archer needed those nurses And I knew he loved our family and friends. And I also knew he wanted me at the hospital. But the commotion and lack of order was really wearing and tearing on him. And it's true. Everything was upside down. But if someone had told me everything was upside down, my pride would have kicked in and I would have said, We got it under control, but we didn't. We were both grasping to control what we could, but what we needed to control most
4: was not only out of our control.
1: We had no idea on how to engage with quadriplegia. I knew if Billy had just stayed a minute, I could have given him a hug and everything would be okay. He usually gives me hugs. I knew if I gave him one that would help him, but there was no time or place or space for that. Not in the hallway, not in
4: Archer's room, not in the crowded family meeting room. And I was also aware that I didn't
1: really wanna do that anyway. I didn't wanna be around him when he was that way. It was fine with me that we had separate shifts. You know, I don't know how it is in your marriage, but I think many marriages have times when one partner is down and the other partner is there to soothe and be steady. Well, that's how it was for Billy and me over the years. We even remarked on it one time when we were younger, how if any kind of setback happened to either one of us, like the time I lost one of my first trials, it was always a time when the other was doing well, and that was good because the other could always cheer the one up or pick up the slack or the extra load or whatever it was for that small little period of time. We've also had times when we were both really down, like when his dad was really sick and all the constant back and forth to the hospital. And I was literally in my last month of pregnancy And then I delivered Dutch and I was then home with five young children, almost alone for two more months while Billy attended to his father who was dying, but no one was willing to recognize he was dying, which made it even harder. Anyway, I simply say this to know we've had times when we were both pretty out of commission to help the other much, but we did. We managed, but this time, this time with Archer's injury, with so many unknowns and feeling completely upside down. Yeah, we were both hit hard at the same time and in a way that might not be changing. How long does quadriplegia last? I don't think either of us during this time were very capable of coming to the aid of the other. Archer's situation seemed to demand everything we possibly had. But that was how I felt. Maybe you can understand that. Especially if you've been through a family trauma. And it pained me to think that for even one nanosecond, Archer might get wind of that and somehow feel responsible. Yes, I think it's a vulnerable time for families, mother, father, and children. Because the person who is ill or injured could come to think that they brought this on a family. How devastating would that be? It's not like that at all. I mean, there is a truth that they did, but they didn't. It was just something that happened. I mean, I know it could be poison to think someone did this to a family because of their one stupid or careless or reckless act. But that wasn't the case at all with Archer. And it's not the case for anyone, child or adult with a disease, a condition, cancer, or an accident. Life just happens. It is a crisis point for a family unit. I knew Billy and I needed to talk. I think the real worst of it was not even that our world was turned upside down and it was starting to shake, but that everything we knew was unknown and uncertain. We had no answers. We had no idea when this period of time, is that what it even was, would pass. Everything passes though right but how long what was going to happen to archer to us to our family the undercurrent of anxiety about the uncertainty was wearing on me too Billy and I had been exchanging topics we knew we needed to discuss. And we did have that list. But what else was it? Oh, Lord. Please help Billy. Please help me. My phone pinged. It was Billy. I suppose he was in the parking lot before he left the parking garage. He texted. We need a mediator. I was stunned. What? Why? I felt like he had just thrown a cold bucket of water in my face. I took in a deep breath, noticing that every fiber of my being was just set on fire. I did not see this one coming. I didn't. Were we in that bad of shape? Oh my God.
4: Please, Lord, please don't let our marriage fall apart. Archer needs us. His best shot at recovery is with a close family. Even Dr. Radcliffe said that. My mind was racing as I continued to change out a cool cloth on Archer's forehead. Hmm. <laughs>
1: I found this audio of this very night, one of a handful of recordings I made spontaneously during my drives to and from the hospital as I decompressed from each day. I couldn't believe I made the recording and then found it. It's from August 2015 when I was driving back to Cape May, day five. Here is an excerpt.
4: Another observation is I've noted that maybe two, possibly three—I don't even remember who they are—insightful friends have said. Start with Nicole Davis. She's like I'm praying for you know you, you and Billy, and your love that this won't break you.
2: <laughs> and she's
4: really right on because. I know well, but it already has strain in it. Um, you know, Billy, like, won't even talk to me about all the issues, and I think it's because, I don't know why, I can't even begin to know why, but I will opine that he's feeling very weak, understandably, and I am too, but when I get weak, I can get strong. I suppose he might think, I don't know, but it's weird. And one of the reasons, the main reason, we don't have any time together. I mean, this passing like ships in the night. And when we do, when we get there, it's usually because one of us is off time on when we got there, or how long we wanted to then stay, or when we wanted to go home. And he really wants to do the nighttime, and I, and and I have a selfish piece because there's a lot of intimacy in the nighttime, but there's also a lot of rest. So then he comes home in the day, and I asked him what he does, and he said, you know, he just kind of chills out. But I was like, I don't have any time to chill out, and I hear that selfishness in me. So I want to return in the morning and stay till, he says, 11 or 12. And I say, how about 10? And he says then he doesn't really get any sleep because by the time he kind of winds down to be tired it's like eight and you know it's stuff like that bullshit stuff just stupid stuff (laughs) and so we're not like on the same page even about that for lord's sake
2: (laughs) help us god
1: life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love, hope for everything, obtain everything. To hear the learnings that go with this story, tune in and listen to episode 25, I Didn't See This One Coming trauma-healing learnings.
0: You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe via email on our site, blinkofanipodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue. You can learn more at BaltimoreMediation.com.